Gospel according to John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Me a drink? You would you? Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband, then come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. (laughs) Oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what 
Well, you guys, thanks for letting me show that. I just love The Chosen. I think it's such a great illustration of the story we're going to look at this morning. If you don't like The Chosen, or it's okay. We can still be friends. It's fine. Um, my name is Andrew. Uh, I've, I've met some of you, but probably not all of you. Uh, I actually serve at our Leewood campus at Christ Community. And uh, Nate, as, as John already pointed out, uh, Nathan uh, is gone today. He's actually preaching in Olathe, and everybody else on his list was busy, so he reached out to me, and uh, here I am. So uh, happy to open God's Word with you. Uh, this story this morning, uh, if you couldn't already tell, it's, it's, it's famously known as Jesus and the Woman of Samaria, or Jesus and the Woman at the Well. And uh, you may be really familiar with this story. You may have never heard it before in your life. Uh, that's totally fine either way. But I'll tell you this, what I love about this story, if, if you want to know who Jesus was and what he was after, what drove him, there is hardly a better example, I think, than this conversation that John has with this woman in, in John, or that Jesus has with this woman in John chapter 4. And there are, there are lots of stories about Jesus, about his brilliant mind, uh, about his moral uh, fortitude, his clarity, his resolve, his courage even in the face of serious adversity. But this story, I think, shows his heart and what he's after. So if you have your Bible, I would love it if you turn to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1 of this story, okay? So Jesus, if you remember uh, these last few weeks, uh, Jesus has been in Judea. So if you look at this map, uh, to give you a, a little bit of, of a sense of Israel in Jesus' day, uh, you'll see that the, at the very bottom here, that, that orange section, that's called Judea, okay? Judea is the big city part of ancient Israel. It's where Jerusalem is. It's where the Roman government mostly was. Uh, it's where uh, the uh, Jewish uh, leadership was as well. The temple was there, right? It's the big city part. Jesus has been in that orange part, Judea, for several chapters now. If you remember, he was at the temple, and now he's been baptizing lots of people in the Judean countryside. And now he decides that he and his disciples are going to go back to Galilee. That's verse 3 of chapter 4. Jesus says, okay, it's time to go back to where we're all from. Most of his disciples at this point are from the region of Galilee, which is that yellow part at the top. You see that? They're going back there. Between the orange and the yellow is that blue part, and that's an area called Samaria, okay? Samaria, for all political, legal purposes, is a part of ancient Israel. It's under the Roman government. It's under the Herodian king in Israel. But Samaria might as well be another planet as far as the Jews are concerned, okay? If you were Jewish, you would avoid that area like the plague. And there are lots of reasons why that we'll get to in just a second. But so strong was the aversion to Samaria that the Jews were known, actually, if they needed to go north or south between Galilee and Judea, that they would actually cross the Jordan River, which is that river running north-south. They would actually cross it into, Gal into a Gentile territory. 
that green and that purple, okay? That's Gentile territory just to go around Samaria to avoid that area. As awkward as it would be for a, a kosher Jew to be among pagan Gentiles, that was preferred to traveling directly through Samaria. That is how deeply these two groups of people despise one another. But now, with that in mind, look now, what, look at what John says in verse 4. And he, that is Jesus, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, what John doesn't mean by that is that the Jordan River was closed for construction that day, and so everybody had to take I-35 north through Samaria to get anywhere. That's not what he means, okay? Geographically speaking, Jesus does not have to go through Samaria. Many Jews we know wouldn't and didn't go through Samaria ever, but not Jesus. Jesus has to go. John's hinting here. He is compelled to go. There's something there he needs to do. And so he and his disciples, they go to Samaria together. Off they go with his disciples. During the journey, okay, in the middle of the day, which is by John's reckoning in your Bible, he says about the sixth hour, that's noon or so, as we would call it, Jesus gets tired and he stops at a town called Sakar. Now this town has a famous well associated with it. It was a well dug by Jacob, Jacob of Old Testament fame. Uh, many, many generations ago. And it's, this well would have been outside the city center. And it's there that Jesus decides to find some shade and rest while his disciples decide then to go into town and buy food and use the bathroom. Like any pit stop you've ever been on, right? You maximize the stop. So they go into town, they get supplies, whatever. Then you see this in verse 7. A woman of, from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, a few really striking things happen all at once, right there in verse 7. First, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan, which again is a major no-no if you are a Jew at this time. One simply avoided the Samaritans and only interacted with them or addressed them when absolutely necessary. Jesus not only talks to a Samaritan here, he asks for a cup from a Samaritan. Okay? And there were many Jews at the time that said even to share a dish with a Samaritan would make you as a Jew unclean, ritually unclean, and you would need to be cleansed. Not only that, he's asking a woman for help. Now, in general, men and women at this time, remember this is a very traditional culture, men and women at this time uh, interacted uh, not, not a whole lot in public, especially if they're not married, uh, and uh, what they would really avoid would be an unmarried man uh, and a woman talking together alone, which is exactly what happens here. If, if there are social taboos left to be unbroken by Jesus in verse 7, I don't know what they are. He crosses every conceivable social line. This woman, moreover, is alone for a reason— Women at this time did most of the water gathering. Apparently, that was too difficult for men, so the women did it in general. But they would do it in the morning, in the cool of the day, and they would do it together for protection because, again, the well is outside of town. So anyone could be passing by, so they would do it together. This woman, in the heat of the day, comes alone. 
So what John is showing you here, with just a few details, when you know the background, he is showing you that this woman is an outcast even from the Samaritans. So from a Jewish perspective, you're reading the story, you, are, you, know, the, you know who the Samaritans are. This, the Samaritans don't even like this woman. Hold that thought, okay? Her shock then is understandable in verse 9. How is it the Jew, Jesus, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Even she knows, you're not supposed to be talking to me right now. You're not supposed to be asking anything of me. Jesus responds to her, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would ask me for water, and I would give you living water. Now, that on the surface, that phrase, living water, uh, it, it literally means moving water, okay? It means water from a river or a stream, as opposed to a well, which is standing water. However, in the Old Testament, Living water was an image often used of God-given life. Power from God. Cleansing from sin that only God can do. In fact, the image of water is so prominent throughout the Bible, actually beginning to end. You could literally read a whole theology of water in the Bible. That is how prominent a metaphor it is. Now, I can, because of that, I can hardly guess what precisely is on Jesus' mind when he tells this woman, I can give you living water. But I think Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verse 13, will give you a little bit of background here where, where God says to his people through the prophet, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So Jesus is hinting here, right? I'm the fountain, and I can offer you living water like this. Now, the woman, for her part, doesn't understand. She says, Jesus, you don't have a bucket. Jacob dug this well. It's a pretty good well. Been around a long time. Pretty reliable. Jesus, you're saying that you have something better than this. Eventually, though, she bites, verse 15, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Then Jesus says this, verse 16, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we don't totally know what this woman's situation actually was, okay? What does Jesus mean by this whole interaction? Was she a serial adulterer? It's possible. But remember, at this time, a woman could not legally divorce her husband. That, that was completely the prerogative of the husband in that relationship. So it, she, would have, she would have had very little recourse if a husband did decide to divorce her. So it's also very possible she's, she's a victim of her society's view of marriage and women in general. She, she keeps getting rejected by men who claim to be her husband, and then she has to go on and marry someone else. Or it could be a mix of both of those situations together. Either way, now we know at least why she's alone at the well in the middle of the day. Okay, this is the kind of shame, especially at this time, that would follow you around wherever you went. Everyone in town knows this woman's problems. They want nothing to do with her. 
she has learned for her part that accepting that shame, okay, living around it, I know I'll go get water by myself. I'll, I'll, I'll change my pattern and my life to live around people's view of who I am. She's, she's decided that is the best way to get along in life, okay? She's accepted that, but Jesus has not. Because Jesus, one of the first things we see here, what is he after? Jesus is after our shame and not our pretense. Shame. Jesus makes it very clear to this woman when he asks her to go get her husband what he is offering to her, and it is not water. Right there, we know Jesus says, this is not a conversation about wells. This is not a conversation about ritual purity. It's not even a conversation about Jacob, our ancestor. It's about shame and the ways we deal with that. The woman deals with her shame with men, and she is content to pretend that her life is okay, that that's good enough. Again, we don't know the specifics of why, but it hardly matters. She's currently with another man who is not her husband, and she's ready to pretend that that's okay, that that's not a problem. Instead, and you cannot miss the irony, instead, she is going to go back to the well over and over and over again with the same results. More shame, more isolation, broken cisterns, poisoned water. That's her life. It is no accident that Jesus, a man, meets a woman in need of a real husband at a well. If you were to go back and read, in particular, the book of Genesis, but this is true throughout most of the Old Testament, when a man and a woman meet at a well, they get married. Jacob himself meets Rachel, his wife, at a well. Jesus, you'll remember if you were here last Sunday, was described by John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3 as the bridegroom, as the husband, looking for his bride. If you were reading this straight through, you would go right to this story. Jesus, he's found his bride, and she's nothing like what we expected her to be. This is not, by the way, a romantic offer from Jesus, but it is an existential one. You, he says to this woman, you keep returning to this well and you will thirst again. It will not work. I can be the husband that you seem never able to find. And I will never leave you or forsake you. The water I give will not let you down. I said at the beginning that this was a story about Jesus' heart. What is he after? Jesus is after our shame, even when we do not want to talk to him about it. And there are wells in our lives. There are deep wells that we return to again and again, hoping that the water will do for us what it's never done, which is quench our thirst. So ask yourself, where are you pretending, lying to yourself, that the well you dug it's good enough. What shame are you ignoring or hiding or stuffing or medicating with something else? What sin are you like, I don't want to deal with that. You may be used to going back to the well alone in the heat of the day, but Jesus is never content with that in your life. He's not. He is after your shame, and he will go there with you. Whatever draws you to him, he will go there with you whether you want him to or not. 
This woman, by the way, she's not ready for that part of the conversation. (laughs) She's still skeptical. But she knows now that Jesus is not just a normal person. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you, that's plural, y'all, you people, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this title, this this woman calling Jesus a prophet is actually no small thing. The Samaritan version of Judaism, okay, and it it was different. But one of the distinctives of Samaritan Judaism is that they only saw the five books of Moses as authoritative. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Okay, these are, the, these are the five books they studied. They never read the prophets, for example. So for her to call Jesus a prophet probably means that she's wondering now, are you the prophet that Moses promised at the end of Deuteronomy? That one would arise like him? Maybe that's who you are. But notice with me, she's also pivoted away from Jesus' question <laughs> to a theological discussion. She says, the Samaritans worship on this mountain. Okay, Mount Gerizim is what she's referring to. She could probably point to it from where they stand. But you people, you Jews, you say that worship can only happen in Jerusalem. Which mountain is right? I hinted earlier that these were two ethnically different and culturally different groups of people who hate each other. Okay, she's hinting at that. You can read actually in 2 Kings in your Old Testament that when the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, Samaria, was defeated by the Assyrian Empire, uh, many of those Jews were taken away. Some of them were then resettled back and mixed with other uh, ethnic groups that were conquered by the Assyrians. And so the Jews and the foreigners resettled that area together, and they married and they had children and the Jews, and there's, this, is, this sounds awful, but this is, this is true. The Jews viewed them as a mixed race, and they looked down on them for that. And we have evidence of that. The Samaritans also seemed to mix their religion. They had some pagan practices. They had some Jewish practices. They also, importantly, mixed their politics. We know from history that the Samaritans were much more cooperative with the Greeks who invaded And then later the Romans, when they invaded at the time of Jesus, whereas the Jews who lived in Galilee and Judea were not super cooperative at all. All that to say, when this woman asks Jesus about mountains, she's not talking about mountains. She's asking about ideology. She's asking about culture. She says, these mountains, Gerizim and Jerusalem, are more than a theological curiosity for this woman. This woman, this is not the equivalent of this lady coming up to Jesus and saying, are you a free will guy or predestination guy? I'm just curious. Where do you land on? That's not what's happening. These mountains, they represent culture, language, history, politics, right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. I kid you not. This is not far from how we might view, for example, conservative and liberal today, but even more divisive. Hundreds of years, strong opinions rooted in experience and history and culture, passed on from generation to generation to generation that led to deep animosity and hatred. 
This woman is saying, Jesus, whose side are you on? She wants to know, where can I put you, Jesus, in this ideological battle? Jesus says this to her, verse 12, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus, the woman asks, which mountain are you after? He says, neither. Neither mountain. I'm not here for mountains or ideologies. What I'm after, Jesus says, is worshipers. Jesus is after worshipers and not ideologies. In retrospect, especially if you've grown up in the church or you've, you've been reading your Bible a long, long time, in retrospect, it is so easy for us to miss how intentionally Jesus seems to have drawn people together from across ideologies and cultures of his world to become worshipers. His followers include Roman appeasers and rebels, tax collectors and insurrectionists, fishermen and Pharisees, seminary-trained pastors like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Samaritan peasant women in John chapter 4. And Jesus isn't after their ideologies. He's after their worship in spirit and in truth. That phrase, spirit and truth, that's Jesus' shorthand for what the Old Testament might call our, a new heart to obey God that only the Spirit can give. And a new obedience to the truth that Jesus is Lord of all. He says, this is what I'm after. And for many, you'll notice, who end up rejecting Jesus, it's not because they are not compelled by him or attracted to him. It's that at the end of the day, the mountain comes first. Mountain first. Sorry, Jesus. I got to pick my mountain. Does Jesus have our worship? Or does the mountain come first? This is something, whether, whether, whether you have followed Jesus your whole life, as far back as you can remember, or you're considering him for the first time this morning, we have to ask ourselves, because our time, just like ancient time, just like every human time, is full of mountains that all want to claim your allegiance and your attention and your affection. And Jesus' offer of living water comes at a price. You have to worship him and him alone, even at the expense of the culture and the politics and the ideologies that have shaped you. This is not to say that all of those things are bad. They aren't. But we cannot worship them if we want to never thirst again. That's not the deal. It is hard to turn your eyes upon Jesus, as the hymn says, when there's a mountain in your way. So how do we move that mountain? <laughs> how do we know we're worshiping Jesus and not just our mountains, okay? It's a big question, but here's at least part of an answer. Stay with me here, okay? Back from verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now at just this moment, 
the disciples return. Okay, they haven't really been a part of the conversation. They're coming back from town, and they see now Jesus is talking to a woman, and they're confused by that, and they're probably offended by that, but they're not going to say anything. Right, stay cool. Just, just roll with it. The woman, for her part, does not even seem to notice that they've returned. She's convinced now. She believes Jesus is who he says he is. She even leaves her water behind. Notice with me. She leaves the no more well water for her. She's done with that. She goes back to town to tell the people that she has been passively avoiding her entire adult life to go tell them about Jesus. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they, that is the town, went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, the disciples back, that's like separate scene, back to Jesus and his disciples. They try to give Jesus some bread because they think that's what Jesus is after here. Here you go, Jesus. We found some bread for you. You're hungry. He says, no. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't even, you don't know about. They're like, great, did you, you found a granola bar. Someone, someone brought you something. Great. Okay, but Jesus, Jesus he, this is a teaching moment for his disciples and anyone who would follow after him. Notice with me, the disciples go into town with some money and they come back with some bread. The Samaritan woman goes into town armed with, get this, nothing. Absolutely nothing. She has no leadership training. She has unorthodox theology. She has a terrible reputation. She has zero social capital. And she comes back with the entire town. Who is the better disciple? The woman, for all her fault, knows what Jesus wants. She knows what he's after. She has found the living water, the true mountain, and it's him. So she goes to get everyone to come and worship at the only temple that matters now. The disciples, meanwhile, have the right Bible. They follow Jesus. They obey kosher. They know Torah. And they have no idea what Jesus actually wants. And they cannot imagine, whatever the answer to that question might be, that it would include people like this woman. No way. No way. This woman knows that Jesus is after everyone, even them, even them. And the disciples don't. And Jesus uses this moment as a, what I would call like an acid test when we are worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth. This story shows you it is more than knowing the right answers. It's loving who Jesus loves, even them whoever them happens to be. Jesus tells his disciples to lift their eyes, to see the town coming out to him. When they do that, I imagine their knee-jerk reaction, again, is to see enemies, idolaters, traitors, adulterers. Jesus says, look again. Verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. When we truly know Jesus, when we encounter him, we begin to know what Jesus is after. Even the people that our mountain tells us we should have nothing to do with. This woman shows us 
can, can we bring our shame and our broken cisterns that cannot possibly quench our thirst to Jesus and exchange them for the living waters of Jesus' love and grace? Can we do that? That's what he wants to do. Can we see beyond our mountains? Okay, past our prejudice and our politics and the talking points and the taboos of our day into the heart of Jesus? Do we know what he is after so deeply that we can go to our enemies and tell them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did? Who knows the worst things about me? And saved me anyway. He can save you too. Okay, this, this is what Jesus is after. Are we after that? So here's what I want us to do as a part of our response this morning. I want us to pray. In particular, I want us to pray for our nine as a part of E90. So as, as a whole church family for 90 days, we have committed to praying every day for nine people who do not know Jesus for 90 seconds a day, that they would have an encounter with Jesus like this, that they would become worshipers in spirit and truth. And what I want us to do is to take that time to pray, not only for them, but also that Jesus would give us the eyes, his eyes, to see a harvest of people, people that he was and is and always will be after. So if you would, bow your heads, and let's pray for 90 seconds together. Father, we confess that as we consider, as we lift these prayers to you, there are moments where all, when we see people, we see obstacles, we see problems, we see issues, we see impossibility even. But Father, give us eyes to see as you see, which is a harvest of worshipers in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.